Hey, well, good morning and welcome again. This is like a double bonus day, you know that? Not only is it Father's Day, this is also the first day of summer. Ah, surprise to some of you, you didn't realize that. You thought that 90 degree weather was summer weather. That was just spring. Can you imagine what summer's gonna be like? But welcome to summer and welcome to Keystone. Welcome to, to I think, what's gonna be an exciting 25 minutes. So I wanna say hi to the folks that are listening from Huffmaster State Park, good to have you with us, and all of you from home, as well as those of you who are here. Now, all week long, I've been challenged by a question, and, and this is a question that's been in my head all week long. How do you explain something to someone who has no frame of reference for what you're explaining? How do you begin to explain something to someone who has absolutely no frame of reference for what you're trying to explain? For instance, how do you explain the beauty of a Lake Michigan sunset to someone who has never stood on the shore of Lake Michigan? Or this, how do you explain the delight of visiting another country and immersing yourself in another culture to someone who has never left their home state? Or this is my favorite one because this one makes my mouth water. How do you explain the delight of the taste of a freshly caught grilled octopus to someone who refuses to try food that is unusual or unfamiliar. Oh, I tell you, until you've had freshly caught grilled octopus, your life is insufficient. <laughs> but how do you explain those kinds of things to people? I mean, it's really hard. How do you explain something to someone who has no frame of reference for what it is you're trying to explain? That's the question that I've been wrestling with all week long. And usually the answer to it is, well, we try to, we try to compare it to something familiar, something that we know or that they might know. So for instance, if you're trying to explain that Lake Michigan sunset to someone who's never stood on the shores of Lake Michigan, you begin by saying, it's like standing in front of this giant body of water and watching the sun go down and then the sky just explodes with ribbons of red and pink and yellow. It doesn't get the job done, but it starts at least. And how do you explain the taste of freshly caught grilled octopus? You compare it to something that people know. And what do you tell them? Hey. It's like chicken. <laughs> no, it's not, really. And no, the little suckers on the octopus don't grab your throat on the way down and cause you to choke. It's really good. Don't diss it until you try it, okay? But that's the whole issue, right? How do you explain something to someone who has no frame of reference for what it is you're trying to explain? And that's exactly what Jesus is trying to do in many of his teachings as they're recorded for us in the Gospels, those first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And oftentimes they're called parables. And with his parables, Jesus tries to introduce his audience to something that is way beyond them by talking about something that they know. Taking the known to help explain the unknown. That's what a parable does. It takes the known to help explain the unknown. 
We're continuing our series in the parables. This is our seventh week in the parables, and there's, there's more to come yet because there are many parables that Jesus teaches in the New Testament. An interesting fact, no one else in the entire New Testament uses parables, only Jesus. Paul never used parables when he was writing to the churches, when he was preaching in the churches uh, throughout all of Asia. Jesus is the only one who taught in parables, but he used many parables because he wanted his people to begin to understand that which for most of them was really, really foreign to their thinking. Jesus is a master storyteller, as we see with these parables. And today he takes some very common elements that they would have all related to, to teach some really important concepts. Today's parable may be familiar to many of you. It's called the parable of the sower. And we're going to be looking at it from Matthew's perspective in Matthew chapter 13. Mark also recorded this parable of Jesus, and Luke also recorded this parable of Jesus, which tells me that if those three gospel writers all thought it was important to include it, this is a pretty important parable. And it's an important parable for us to understand. Now, I've changed it just a little bit. Instead of calling it the parable of the sower, I believe it's better called the parable of the soils. And as we talk about it together for a few minutes this morning, I think you'll begin to understand why I've made that slight shift from the parable of the sower to the parable of the soils. Now, as we begin, as I read the first verse of this particular text that we're going to be looking at, it's going to feel a little bit like we're jumping right into the middle of something. And that's because we are. So let me read the verse and then get you caught up with what's happening. Here's what Matthew records. That same day, which should make us ask, what same day? What was going on before this? That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Well, that sounds like a pretty cool summer activity, right? You get out of the house, you go sit by the lake. What's going on here? Well, let me explain a little bit of the backstory. According to Matthew and the things that he writes just prior to this, the popularity of Jesus is growing by leaps and bounds. And Matthew records that he did several miracles, including taking a man who was demon-possessed, and because he was demon-possessed, he was both blind and unable to speak, and he cast out the demon, and the man suddenly could see and he could speak again. In addition, Jesus was healing all kinds of people with various kinds of illnesses. While the people are fascinated by this, it, who doesn't want to be around when that kind of cool stuff is happening? So the popularity of Jesus is growing. People are coming from all over to see the miracles, hoping maybe for another one of those miracles where he feeds them from a handful of fish and loaves, and then listen to him teach. Sometimes they understood what he was teaching, and yeah, sometimes they didn't understand so much. But with the growth of his popularity, other things are happening. The religious leaders are getting increasingly anxious and angry about Jesus. So much so, in fact, that they are now deliberately and intentionally plotting to kill him. Now, this is way before the crucifixion. This is way before the end of Jesus' life on earth. This is just as his ministry is really beginning to blossom and already the religious leaders are saying, we got to take this guy out. He's creating too much trouble for us. Jesus is somewhere in the northern part of the 
the Israelite territories, the area called Galilee. And when it said that he went from the house to the lake, I think what was happening here is that so many people were coming to him, so many people were listening to him, that the house that he was initially in to teach just got too crowded. And so he moved outside. And because he was near this body of water, which is not just a lake, it's actually the Sea of Galilee, he goes from the house down to the shore, where the people now all stand around him on the shore, and he sits down in a boat and begins to teach. And this is what he teaches. Such large crowds gathered around him. They got into a boat, sat in it, while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables. And, and actually what that means is that there's going to be a whole series of parables that follow one after another after another in Matthew chapter 13. Seven of them totally. We're only going to look at the first one. Saying, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came along and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop a hundred, sixty, and thirty times what was sown. And that's the parable that Jesus tells. Now the audience would have understood what he was saying in those, in those words. They would have understood the whole concept of, of planting seed, of having to cultivate the land, and dealing with issues that come when you plant the seed. Most of them had a plot of land that they actually used to grow wheat and barley. Those were the common grains of the day. And that plot of land would have been adjacent to another plot of land, which was adjacent to another plot of land, which was adjacent to another plot of land, all of which were owned by different families. And these would not have been huge plots of land. They would have been fairly small. They would have basically been farmed by hand, and they would come and sow their seed. Now, those plots of land, because you didn't want to walk on someone else's uh, plantings, there were paths that were developed between the plots of land. And those paths were what the people would walk on, and maybe if they had an ox that would help them plow the land, they would walk on that path. They would have known about the soil conditions. They would have known about rocks and, and stones in the soil. They would have known about thorns. They would have known about harvest and how hard it was to get a good harvest. That, that's all that they would have understood about what Jesus was saying. But let me explain the image a little bit more so we can understand it a little bit better. The first seed that's referenced falls onto the path, that path that separates the plots one from another from another. Uh, these plots would have been probably 20 or 30 feet wide and maybe 50 feet long. And you would have planted, and you wanted to get as much harvest out of that as possible. You respected your neighbor's land. So as you're scattering the seed, because they didn't have automated planters in those days like we do today, as you scatter the seed, some of it falls on this hard, beaten path. Well, it will never, never take root there. In fact, Jesus, as he tells the story, says the birds come and they eat it, and it's gone. That's the first 
Second, some falls onto rocky places. There are places in, in the land of Israel, in Palestine, where there is underneath a two or three inch layer of soil, shale. These, these uh, shelves of shale. Now, you can plant your seed in that soil, by all means. But when the seed begins to root itself, it only has a couple of inches in which to root itself. And that's good to get it started. But as soon as it gets hot out, and it does get hot in that land, as soon as it gets hot, that, that new growth withers because the roots don't go deep enough to sustain it when the temperatures climb. Soon that plant wilts and dies, and there is no harvest for it. <clears throat> Third, seed falls among thorns. Uh, you cannot prevent totally a field from having weeds and thorns. No matter how much you use whatever technology you have, and certainly in that day they had no technologies that we have today. And the weeds in Palestine were especially aggressive. And some would grow to a height of six feet, which is about here on me. That's a big weed. I mean, that's a scary weed, actually, when you get one that tall. They also would send out roots very quickly and begin to capture all the moisture, taking it away from the seed that you had planted. And as they grow, because they're growing quickly to that extraordinary height, they capture all of the sunlight and keep that from getting down to the, to the seed that you want to germinate to give you your grain. The grain gets choked out by the thorns. It might sprout a little bit, but it never thrives. And then there's the fourth soil, the good soil. You're not working on a shale shelf here. This soil is rich and full, and the plants get in there, and they build their roots down into the soil, and they grow, and they produce this wonderful harvest. And the people listening to Jesus would have understood all of that. And when Jesus finishes telling that story, he concludes with this somewhat curious statement. Whoever has ears, let him hear. Whoever has ears, let him hear. And we want to say, okay, Jesus, you know, I got ears, okay? And I hear but I do not understand what you're wanting me to get from this. What's the point? Where's this going? Well, if you find yourself in that situation, you're in good company. Because in actuality, a little later, the disciples came to him and they, they asked him a question. And it's a, it's a good question. Uh, they basically said, why do you teach in parables? Because we don't always understand what you're getting at. So Jesus gave them an explanation. Jesus told them what he was getting at. And we want to look at that because that helps us begin to understand what we should be gaining from this parable. Now, let me just give you an overview first. We've got three things. We have a sower, we have seed, and we have soil. The sower in the parable is Jesus. But by extension, the sower also ends up being pastors or missionaries 
or Bible teachers? Actually, actually, the sower ends up being you, too, if you're a follower of Jesus. Because you also have both the opportunity and privilege to share the seed. Oh, oh and, and what is the seed? Well, the seed is the message that Jesus brought. The message of forgiveness and new life. You, too, have the privilege of helping people find and follow Jesus, which is what Keystone is has always been about. So we all become sowers. And we all have the opportunity to spread the seed, the message that Jesus came to bring. Well, then what about the soils? Well, the soil represents, in this parable at least, our spiritual heart. And there are four kinds of spiritual hearts. The hard path I characterize as an unresponsive heart. The rocky soil, well, we're going to call that the impulsive heart. The thorny soil, preoccupied heart. And the good soil is a responsive heart. So where do I get that from? Well, let's look at these a little bit more. The hard path is the unresponsive heart. And in Matthew 13, Jesus said this, anyone who hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it or grasp it or take it to, their, take it to themselves, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. There are some people who are absolutely antagonistic toward the message of Jesus. They want nothing to do with it. They, they push hard against it. And there are other people who are just kind of apathetic toward the message. They're just not interested. I haven't met many people who are hardcore anti the message. But I've met more than my share of people who are apathetic about it. They're just not interested. When I was uh, pastoring at a church in Indiana, on Saturday mornings, I would oftentimes meet with a group of guys from the community over at a local breakfast place, and we'd have breakfast together. None of them were from our church. Uh, I knew some of them through Rotary, uh, and others were just community people, uh, oftentimes community leaders of one sort or another. Uh, they called themselves the Liars Club, which can give you an idea of what our breakfast conversations were all about. And I oftentimes wondered, what are they doing asking a guy like me, a pastor, to come and be a part of this breakfast group. Uh, I realized that I was kind of there maybe to represent Jesus a little bit, not to preach Jesus, not to practice my Sunday message on, Jesus, on, on them, but just to represent Jesus to them. M many of them had been raised in the church and had left it. And, and I could tell that as I got to know them and as we talked about things, it wasn't that they were against Jesus, they just didn't care about Jesus. And nothing happens when you don't care. That's the hard soil. That's the unresponsive heart. It's sometimes aggressively anti-Jesus, but most of the time it's just apathy. I don't really care. I don't want to have my Sunday interrupted. I don't want to have anybody tell me how to live my life. I don't care. That's the hard soil. 
the second is the rocky soil. And this is the impulsive heart. This person finds Jesus and gets all excited. It's an emotional commitment, but unfortunately, it's not really a heart commitment. This happens, I, I did uh, eight years of youth ministry before I, I became a pastor of a church, and uh, I would see this at like summer camp. You take kids out to summer camp, or you take them on a retreat, or you, you take them to a, a conference of some sort, and, and they get all excited about Jesus, and, and they're going to live for Jesus, and they're going to turn the world upside down for Jesus. But it lasts until the last day of summer camp, or the last day of the conference, or the last day of the retreat. Because it's an emotional commitment made with all my friends, and we're all going to do this together. And then it just kind of fades away. They come back home, and they get caught back up in, in life. And, and then maybe, maybe things don't go quite as they had desired. You know, they, they didn't get what they had hoped for, and Jesus becomes the blame for that. Because I thought if I trusted Jesus, things would be better. Things would go good. I'd get what I was praying for. And when it doesn't happen, they accuse Jesus of failing them, and they walk away. You know, that's kind of like the seed on the rocky soil, right? It grows, it sprouts, and then it dies off. An emotional decision lacks the staying power that a commitment requires. And if you don't have that commitment, your faith will fade. It's easy to get excited about Jesus, but it's not easy to follow Jesus. It takes commitment. You don't just follow him in the good times, you also follow him in the hard times. And if you don't have that commitment, your faith will shrivel and die. Thorns are the preoccupied heart. We read this about the thorns. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. They find Jesus, but their life is filled with a lot of distractions. Jesus specifically mentions two of them worries of life and deceitfulness of wealth, worry and greed. And Jesus, if you're holding on to worry and greed, now creates this divided heart for you. You want to follow Jesus, but, but you're consumed with worries about the what-ifs of life. And, and, then, and then there's this thing about wanting more, more success, more comfort, more things. You will never thrive in your faith with a divided heart. You trust in God, and that replaces your worry. God must become your ultimate security over your bank account, over your possessions, over your success, over your titles. A divided heart will never thrive. Which brings us to the good soil, which is the responsive heart. And this is what Jesus said. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. This person, re this person receives the message with joy and commits to following Jesus through good and bad. And their life begins to reflect Jesus. They're more peaceful, more patient, more loving, 
more kind, more gentle. They're quick to tell others about who Jesus is and what he has done. And so what does this parable say to you and me? I think the parable is about how you and I respond to the message of Jesus, not in a moment of time, but over the course of a lifetime. Not in a given moment, but in the continuity of your life. Which brings me to the big idea. There's a competition that rages in every human heart. There is that competition that rages in your heart and mine every day. And we have choices to make as to whether we're going to continue on the course of following Jesus or are we going to veer off course? Are we going to get apathetic, disinterested? Are we going to get frustrated by troubles and difficulties and think that Jesus failed us and we're going to veer off the course? Are we going to let worries come in or our, our compulsion for more? The question is, with this competition raging in your heart, who do you choose to follow? What do you choose to follow? Every day we are confronted by competing voices and issues. Every day. And if we, left, if it's left to, if we leave it to ourselves, it will be very easy for us to veer off course and follow some of those competing voices. But we can overcome. We can stay the course. What does it take to cultivate the good soil of a responsive heart? That's ultimately the question that you and I have to ask and answer, isn't it? What does it take to approach something as hard as cancer or divorce or the loss of a job or a rebellious child with a faith-filled heart. Farmers and gardeners know that a good crop requires good seed and good soil. But farmers and gardeners also know that a good crop requires something more. It requires constant attention. So look at this. A responsive heart, that good soil heart, requires not just a one-time commitment to follow Jesus, but a lifetime of cultivation and effort. And what does that look like? Well, three things. Learn to know God by reading the Bible. Learn to depend on God by developing a habit of prayer. Learn to trust God by living in obedience to him. And you're going, well, that's not very sexy. That's even, not even very new. And the truth is, you're absolutely right. It isn't. But that's what the thing is about farming and gardening. It's being faithful to the tasks which aren't sexy and aren't new. But you've got to cultivate the soil and keep going after the weeds and keep watering it and nurturing it and fertilizing it if you intend to have a good return for your work. And these basic elements, you will never know God until you begin to know him through the message of the Bible. So where do you start? I'd start in the Gospels. 
Start at the first part of the New Testament and learn about God who sent his son Jesus. And get to know him. Because when you get to know Jesus, you get to know God. You get to know his heart. And you get to know what he desires. And prayer? I mean, we're not just talking about rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub, yay, God prayers. We're talking about real prayer. Not just, oh God, help me to pass this test. Oh God, help me to get this sale. This is the kind of prayer that says, God, thank you for your love. And now guide me through my day. This is the kind of prayer where it's, maybe it's only two or three minutes, but you cultivate this habit of regular prayer, thanking God and committing to God all that's going on in your life. And trusting him, because as you begin to read the Bible, as you begin to listen to him, as he talks to you through the word, as he begins to nudge you through prayer, you begin to follow what he says. This sounds very simple. It takes commitment. It takes effort. It's a lot like farming and gardening. It's a lot like getting a good return for the seed that you sow in good soil. And shortcuts won't work. Would you stand, please, as we pray? Father, you, 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 give, you gave us so many lessons through Jesus when he was on this earth. Lessons that sometimes seem kind of vague and unclear, and, and, and yet they're so very practical. So we thank you for the lesson of today. And I pray, Father, that each one of us will cultivate a responsive heart. That we will be fertile soil for the message of Jesus to root itself and grow and produce an abundant harvest. Help us to, to even develop these simple disciplines of reading the Bible and a habit of prayer and obedience to the things that you teach us, knowing that then we are indeed building a responsive heart. So help us to that end, because we can't do it by ourselves. We need your help. We need your blessing. Thank you for this day, the beauty of this day. We thank you for fathers and the role that they play in the lives of their children. We thank you for for men who have stepped into other children's lives and have become surrogate fathers. And we just, we just ask that you will bless their efforts. And thank you for this summer day. May we enjoy it as a gift of your grace and goodness to us. And we leave now full of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Have a good day.